Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, December 4th, 2009. This week, episode 148 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always enjoy working with you, Joe. Good day, Cliff. We also have the lovely environmental Annie Koalecki at the controls. Hey, Joe. And the wingman, Chris Boyzell, watching over her shoulder here for for the day. All right, today's segments are going to include the microband trivia question. We've got Mr. Philip P. Jalbert of the Executive Secretary of the Interagency Council on IAQ. We'll have the IE Connections, What's News, with Mr. Glenn Falman. We'll go into the second half of our interview, and then we'll do the roundup. Uh, We've been adding a blog to the radio website every week. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank those sponsors. Thank those sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. Okay, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Just simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Congratulations to Cheryl Schultz. Go, girl, from Raleigh, North Carolina, for correctly answering last week's microband trivia question. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, December 4th, 2009. According to an introduction to indoor air quality on the EPA's website, what causes indoor air problems in homes? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Okay. Today's guest is Phil Jalbert. He's uh, served as the executive secretary to the Federal Interagency Committee on Indoor Air Quality since 2002. He's also led several teams as a team leader since his 1989 arrival in the Indoor Environments Division, including the Radon team from 2004 to 2009 and the Real Estate team from 1995 to 2000. Phil was also the program manager for EPA's National Radon Proficiency Program, 1989 to 1995, which was instrumental in building the current U.S. radon services industry. They do measurement, mitigation, and training in the radon industry. Prior to joining the IED, Phil served as a Superfund Policy Section Chief. Phil's other EPA program experience include drinking water, groundwater, leaking underground storage tanks, hazardous waste, mining wastes, and lab accreditation. Prior to joining the EPA, he was a presidential fellow with the Defense Information Systems Agency 
and the Congressional Research Service Library of Congress. He holds an MBA in public management and housing and urban uh, economics and a BA of political science from the University of Massachusetts in Amherst and as an, uh, has an AS in electrical technology. He also served in the U.S. Navy as a precision instrumentation specialist in the calibration and repair of nuclear submarine systems for Squadron 10 out of New London, uh, Connecticut. We have some introduction music for Phil. I'm talking about America, sweet America. You know, God done shed his grace on thee. He, he, he crowned our good. Yes, he did. Heavy brotherhood from sea to shining sea. All right, good, uh, good day, Phil. Do we have you on the line? Hello. Hello. All right. We got you. By the way, I have to give you a little, uh, we got a text message already that says, go Minutemen. So I, I assume the Minutemen are from uh, the university you attended there. That's right. All right. Well, welcome to IAQ Radio, and thanks for joining us. Um, your, your title is the Executive Secretary of, of the CIAQ, and um, I'm wondering, you know, what type of previous experience, I did go through a little of your background, but... You know, how has that helped you in this current position? Well, I would say that uh, a large part of civil service at the federal level is collaboration and coordination, especially in jobs like this one where the agency's indoor air and indoor environments program is voluntary. So we are successful only to the degree that we can persuade and get people to cooperate. So one of the things that I did in the past, I think that isn't mentioned in my brief bio, is as good background for the work I do now, was when I was in Superfund, um, one of my responsibilities there was to prepare for Congress the report for 1987 and 1988 on how the agency was spending the billions of dollars that we'd been given to implement the Superfund program. And that involved essentially uh, a massive coordination effort between all the federal agencies uh, involved in the Superfund program that had Superfund liabilities, as well as summarizing for the Congress how the agency, EPA in this case, was spending the billions that we'd been given to actually implement the program uh, at the state and local level. And in 1987, that was equivalent to a billion six hundred million. So you can imagine. Uh, the effort that was required to um, prepare such a report for Congress, uh, in a way, an accounting report of how we'd spent that much money. Absolutely, sounds like a big project. Well, what about the uh, what is the objective of of the CIAQ? Now, I, we have this acronym police thing here too. I've got to be careful. The Committee on Indoor Air Quality. Oh, okay. The Committee on Indoor Air Quality. What uh, what's the objective of that? primary objective of the committee at this point in time is to serve as a catalyst for the exchange of information on indoor air quality research and indoor air quality activities at the federal level and to the degree possible at the private level as well. Uh, what groups participate as part of the Committee for Indoor Air Quality? Well, the committee itself, uh, being a federal committee, of course, is comprised of upwards of 20 federal departments and agencies. And that membership can change over time, and it, and it has changed over time. But primarily, uh, the committee's principal um, members are EPA and its four co-chair agencies. And those four co-chair agencies are the Consumer Product Safety Commission, the Department of Energy, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration of the Department of Labor. But we have many other uh, agencies and departments that participate in the meetings in particular, and I would say that over the past few years, participation by, other than EPA and the co-chairs, has been primarily by HUD, Housing and Urban Development, uh, the State Department, General Services Administration, and a number of others that um, have an increasingly greater responsibility for indoor air quality because of things having to do with terrorism, for example, 
and the growing movement with green buildings and energy efficiency. You know, why would State Department, you know, be involved? Are they concerned about indoor air quality in the embassy or, uh, or what? Primarily, I think most of the agencies like State that are participating in IEQ activities at the committee level are looking for guidance on how to protect the facilities. Uh, after 9-11, there was quite a flurry of activity, you may recall, having to do with how to protect buildings from um, outdoor pathogens being infiltrated. Um, many of these departments and agencies have large real estate holdings, real property holdings, and so they are very concerned from a property management point of view for managing IAQ properly. I see. Now, what, who or what was behind the, you know, the formation of the CIAQ, and when did this occur? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think everybody knows that there's been a long-term awareness that the indoor environment can pose problems to the occupants, especially uh, in the workplace. Everybody is familiar with OSHA. Uh, but the awareness for indoor air quality problems in the home and in the non-workplace was a little more slow to develop, I think. And I think what eventually happened is that awareness uh, was growing in the 70s and early 80s. People uh, old enough probably remember the Legionella outbreak in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Events like that got a lot of attention, right? Yep. Yep. And what happened is uh, a lot of the professional organizations that are concerned today and at that time with indoor air quality, for example, uh, the World Health Organization, uh, the National Academy of Sciences, ASHRAE, the Association for Refrigeration and Air Conditioning, um, Consumer Federation of America, and others were raising uh, questions about IAQ and what did we know about it and what we didn't know about it. And that background essentially led to um, the General Accounting Office, the General Accountability Office, as it's called now, which is headed up by the Comptroller. Uh, to issue a report to Congress in 1980, which basically said um, that the Clean Air Act should be amended to give EPA responsibility for IAQ in the non-workplace. It also went on to identify examples of some of what they considered to be the more important IAQ pollutants that at that point people had become aware of as being significant risks. And I'll just list the top five here because I think they're quite interesting. The first one they listed was radon. The second one they listed was carbon monoxide. The third one they listed was formaldehyde, followed by nitrogen dioxide and smoking, secondhand smoke in particular, even though they didn't call it that at that time. Then what happened, I'm giving you just the highlights because there's a lot more detail that we could go into, but it would take far more than an hour to talk about. Um, in about 1983-84, all of these activities and the recommendations from the GAO report in 1980 led to EPA and the other agencies forming the CIAQ, which at that point comprised 16 agencies. In 1985, under the auspices of the CIAQ, there was an IAQ research strategy that was developed. And then in 1986, Superfund was amended um, which required a report to Congress on uh, IAQ activities. And that report was delivered to Congress in 1989. And the committee, as you see it today, has basically existed in its current form since that time. Hmm. Cliff? Um, do you have a budget? You know, did you get money from Congress or do you get money from the government? And is that budget uh, pretty much staying the same? Is it being reduced? Is it increasing? Well, you know, you can talk about budget in several different ways. I prefer to think of it as resources, okay. because to talk about a budget implies dollars, and we have resources that are far greater than simply dollars available to us as a committee. And that biggest resource is our people, the people who work here at EPA, the people who work in each of the member agencies, et cetera, and, in, and the people who are in the private sector who make contributions to the general community of practice on IAQ when they participate in our meetings and elsewhere. Um, so, in terms of a strict budget, we have a very small budget, which is primarily used to support our website and our meeting uh, infrastructure. 
Um, but the biggest resource is really the people and the, and the fact that when we all get together for these triannual meetings, there's a lot of activity, a lot of sharing of ideas, uh, offers of help, uh, requests for uh, support, requests for ideas, requests for comments on things that one agency might be doing. For example, recently, the United States Postal Service uh, developed its own internal vapor intrusion guidance and solicited comments from the wider IAQ community that um, rep is represented by the CIAQ. So um, that happens all the time, and I think that's one of its real strengths. I, I noticed that um, I'm, I'm, I haven't been familiar with the CIAQ for all that long. I've, I've been in the indoor air quality world for quite a while, but it, it, it seems like you're starting to become more noticed, I guess, and it seems to me a lot of that is uh, the Internet. And, and you seem to be using that. And you mentioned meeting three times a year. Is that the extent of the meetings, or do you also put on other types of programs from time to time? Well, um, we have several vehicles by which we are communicating with our wider uh, community of practice. Um, we have the website, and I would encourage people who may not have visited the website to do so. It's fairly easy to find. It's hosted on the EPA web server. Um, it's under the IAQ uh, URL, uh, and I think I provided you that, and perhaps you could provide that to the listeners if or else I could. We can do um, that. We have a, okay. Uh, I have an email address, an email box that I communicate with um, these audiences for CIAQ, and that's CIAQ at EPA.gov. And then um, we have the listserv. And the listserv, I think, is one of the reasons why uh, perhaps awareness of the CIAQ has been increasing. Um, I instituted the listserv not too many years ago, and at this point in time, we have well over 1,000 subscribers worldwide and uh, recruiting more all the time. And I would, again, encourage people, uh, if they're not on the listserv, to subscribe. It's very easy to do. And you can do that by simply um, sending an, a blank email um, to subscribe at epa.gov for CIAQ. It's on the website. Okay. Phil, by what mechanism did you obtain this position? Did you seek the government out? Did they seek you out? Is this an appointment? Uh, how did that work? No, um, it, it was much simpler than that. I was already, of course, working here at EPA. The woman who preceded me in this position retired, and I was approached um, about uh, picking up this new responsibility, which I volunteered to do. Mm -hmm. That's simple. Okay. What, uh, what types of accomplishments can you point to that, you know, you're, you're most uh, proud about with respect to your time here with the CIAQ? Uh, the fact that it's uh, become, as you suggested a moment ago, as um, active as it has been. Uh, a number of people have joined the CIAQ uh, meetings have been very successful in the recent past. Uh, on an average meeting, we're in excess of 125 to 130 people. Um, we've been using web-based technologies much more effectively. Um, and I think uh, if you look at the meeting minutes, as well as the presentations that we've had at the CIAQ meetings in the past, you'll see that they cover a wide variety of topics, especially the presentations. And uh, the meeting minutes themselves, uh, which are limited to federal agency activities, are very diverse, and they give you a very good sense of the range of IAQ research and other related activities that these various departments and agencies are involved in. Does the CIAQ have some sort of authority, Phil, uh, you know, by which you coordinate this information among these agencies? Uh, you know, it would seem it's almost uh, akin to herding cats. Well, um, it is a voluntary effort. I mean, we do have a, a statutory direction to conduct this activity, but we don't have statutory authority to compel activity. Okay. So what that really means is, is what I was talking about at the top of the show, which is it really depends on our ability to recruit people to the topic, um, solicit their support, um, pro promote their participation in the meetings and in other forums like the listserv so that we can share information that is relevant to the various audiences in the non-workplace especially um, 
as it relates to related activities. For example, right now there's been quite a lot of interest, both privately and in the federal government, about the relationship between uh, energy efficiency, programs to promote energy efficiency and weatherization, and the potential effects, benefits as well as negative effects on indoor air quality and the health of occupants. That's uh, you've hit on a subject that's close to my heart. There, I um, I'm wondering, do you have a, a program planned that, or have you done one recently? Let's say that uh, discusses that issue. Uh, not per se, no. Um, you know, you can imagine that uh, it's 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 a challenge to try and come up with a um, unified position on something uh, like that. The committee hasn't taken such a position for all intents and purposes for quite some time because we've focused our energies recently, in, at least since 2002, on serving as this information clearinghouse and catalyst for ideas. However, um, with some of these energy efficiency initiatives, retrofit initiatives that you've been hearing about in the press that are part of uh, this new push by the current administration to improve energy efficiency and energy independence, um, we've been very successful, I think, as individual agencies and as a committee in making sure that IAQ is not given short shrift. I see. And that's that's an important issue, I think, at least for our listeners. It very and much I, is, yes. And we appreciate that. Now, what about uh, frustrations with being the director of CIAQ? Obviously, there's things you're proud of. Um, can you talk to us about any of the frustrations? Well, I wouldn't characterize it so much as a frustration as a, a challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges um, we face as a committee and as individual agencies and as a government are making Americans more aware of how important the indoor environment can be on their health and what that implication has for the national health care burden. I see. Um, you know, just to follow up on, on that question, would you um, – would you say America is behind other countries, you know, such as you know Scandinavia or Europe, in in terms of public awareness of indoor air quality and, and government involvement in indoor air quality? I I really don't have enough information to even begin to answer that question. Okay. Okay. Well, what yeah. I, I'm I'm curious, you know. Personally, for you, what's the most interesting indoor air quality issue that that you deal with on a, you know through the CIAQ? I would I would have to say that um, for me personally, radon has been the most interesting topic to date. Um, it is one of the most serious indoor air pollutants that we face as a nation. It's responsible for upwards of twenty one thousand lung cancer deaths each year. Recently, the World Health Organization issued a radon handbook, which is intended to guide radon public policy in countries around the world. And um, that has been a very effective tool for not only EPA, but some other radon programs around the world, because a number of European and Western countries do have radon programs. And the evidence suggests that radon is a very significant health risk for indoor air uh, in many countries. Right now, the WHO is estimating up to 14% of all lung cancers worldwide are due to radon exposure in the home. You know, Phil, I was wondering if you could just uh, kind of provide history for our listeners on the government's involvement with radon. Well, the, um, <laughs> that, that, that could be a complex answer, but I think the simplest way to deal with that is to say that um, <clears throat> EPA has, has had to lead on radon since uh, the early 80s. We talked earlier before the show began, I think, uh, about the Stanley Watrous event in Pennsylvania where Stanley was going to work at the Limerick Power Plant and set off the radiation alarms on his way to work, and this is before the power plant had long become operational, and it was later discovered that he had very high radon levels in his home, and he was bringing the radon to work and setting off the radiation alarms on his way into the power plant. That really set off a public awareness event uh, that eventually led to the formation, a short time later, 
of the radon division here at EPA. And that radon division existed as a, as a single entity, as a separate entity, until 1995 when we were combined with the then existing indoor air division. And that became what we now know as the indoor environments division. So EPA has basically had the lead on radon since 1985 or so. Yeah, we're from and in 1988, in 1988, um, Congress essentially codified the program that EPA had been running on radon under other various statutory authorities into a single statute, which we call the Indoor Radon Abatement Act, but is in fact Title III of the Toxic Substances Control Act. And we've run the program under that authority ever since. You know, this is, you know, kind of an off-the-wall question, and, and, you know, if you don't know it, that, that, that's fine. You know, you'd mentioned this individual who kind of triggered it when he walked into the power plant. Do you have any mm -hmm. idea whether or not he's still living? Oh, yes. Oh, great. So, he is. In fact, for a time, and I don't know what he's doing at the moment, but for a time he actually worked in the radon services business, providing radon mitigation and testing services to other um, Pennsylvanians. That's that's good to know. We're very familiar with radon because we're in Western Pennsylvania and we've got the Reading Fault here. And uh, I'm not yeah. sure whether is Pennsylvania one of the worst places in the country with radon. Well, let's just say that uh, Pennsylvania has its share of what we call high radon potential areas. We have something on our website called the radon potential map, or sometimes referred to as the radon zone map. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you visit our website under the radon link you will see the map there and we've we basically divided every county in the united states into one of three zones high medium and low and what the results of our surveys that led to the maps creation tell us is that in zone one the screening measurement for radon in indoor air in homes is likely to be above four picocuries and as you probably all know, four picocuries is the agency's action level for radon. It's the level at which we recommend you fix your house to reduce that level as far as possible. So that's zone one. And Pennsylvania has a large number of zone one counties as well as some zone two counties, which are medium, mm -hmm. where the predicted screening level is likely to be between two and four. For zone three, the predicted screening level is below two. But that doesn't mean people in zone three shouldn't test because we find very high houses in all three zones. Mm -hmm. These maps are just general indicators at the county level, and, and you can imagine from a geologic point of view that the variation within counties is enormous. I'm, I'm curious, uh, I want to go back to the gentleman who set off the radon detectors there, at, or the radiation detectors, and um, you do, prior to the show, and I kind of lost track whether we mentioned it again, you were talking he had 10,000 picocuries in his home. What kind of? Yes, a, my recollection is that he had tens of thousands of picocuries. I think it was, I think it was twenty-one thousand. I can't re quite recall. I mean, that's just off the charts. Is that that's that seems to be that that would be highly unusual. It was very highly unusual. Yes, is as there, we said before the show began, um, most houses are going to be anywhere from a few picocuries to a hundred or so. Um, many houses fall into the four to twenty or thirty picocuries range. But houses above 100 are quite unusual, but they do exist. Is there some... The, thing I, would, the, the thing I would like to really underscore here when we're talking about radon levels is uh, we just talked about the EPA action level, um, which is four picocuries, and we strongly recommend that people fix at four so that they get the level lower. But the thing I think I want to underscore that with is that the World Health Organization's radon handbook that we mentioned a moment ago came out with a recommendation that uh, programs consider setting their action levels at 2.7. I mean, I'm oversimplifying what the WHO said, but it might be worthwhile for those who have an interest in radon to uh, go to the WHO website or go to our website and link up to the WHO handbook and see what it says, because um, their recommendation is that these national programs setting radon levels look at setting an action level that is equivalent to 2.7 picocuries. All right. What I'm I will uh, make sure that after the show we post the um, the website on our homepage at IAQ Radio, so the listeners uh, can go to there. 
But uh, before we continue with our interview here, Phil, we'd like to take a break and uh, go to what we call the IE Connections What's News segment, and we'll bring you right back. Okay. Hey, Glenn Fellman, how are you, sir? Hello. Hello. Welcome, Glenn. What's news? Uh, well, great. first of all, great show. It's great to hear uh, Phil Jarbet, and I, I've uh, followed the uh, CIQ's happenings for a long, long time, so it's uh, overdue time for him to be on the show. I understand we've kind of uh, given away one of your secrets here, that you get, pick up some of your little tidbits from the uh, CIAQ, huh? I do. I get. I get. I get Phil's emails and I forward them out, and then people think that I'm like on top of my game. So you know, if you could limit that distribution list to the press. I'd really appreciate. It. <laughs> You're busted, Glenn. I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 truly, in the age of internet, it's it's hard. It's hard to produce news. Anyway, but I've got some news for you today. These are some things that have been. Uh, making headlines over the last week, and it's been quiet since we had the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, first story I want to talk about is uh, something uh, not too far away from you guys in Pennsylvania. Uh, a doctor at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said November 18th that the outbreak of histoplasmosis at Ohio State is, quote, a cluster that could, quote, potentially be very concerning. Uh, he went on to say, I would say anytime you have a cluster, it is worth investigation. That came from Dr. Benjamin Park, an epidemiologist at CDC in Atlanta. A cluster is defined by a grouping of cases that seems unusual. And uh, Columbus City officials said Wednesday that the Columbus Health Department has been working with OSU to investigate the outbreak at Hitchcock Hall. Three women, uh, two employees at Hitchcock and one 19-year-old student who had spent time in the building, have all become Ill, Ill with histoplasmosis within the past eight months. Two of them were hospitalized. Now, 30 employees were moved from the building this month, and the evacuation started about two weeks ago. Uh, but, however, uh, sometimes it's not related to the building. Uh, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And um, as uh, sort of evidence towards that, uh, there's been another story in the news this week, which is that a woman who works near Ohio State and takes lunchtime walks across the campus was diagnosed and treated in June 2008 for histoplasmosis. Hmm. And... Um, what uh, they've, they've discovered, uh, it's, it's very kind of interesting here, uh, environmental health and engineering was brought in to do some work, and they did some testing. And it, the testing showed that the fungus was not detected in the air in the building, in dust samples from the office suite where the two employees worked, or in the ceiling tiles of Hitchcock Halls. However, it was detected in a swab in a mixing box, which is the section of ductwork where outside air and re air returning to the outside are blended. Uh, so it's not outside, according to some officials. It's, it's not inside, uh, some officials say. The problem is actually coming from outside, perhaps as a result of some disruption to the uh, ground and, and uh, areas where they're doing construction on a new building recently. So that's an interesting story that's in the news. We'll continue to follow it. Another one that's been in the news and has uh, some recent action is the Chinese drywall syndrome. Uh, results from a major indoor air study of 51 homes were released on November 23rd, just before Thanksgiving, along with initial reports from two studies of corrosions in homes with Chinese drywall. Uh, the uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission can now say that they can show a strong association between homes with the problem drywall and the levels of hydrogen sulfide in those homes and the corrosion of metals in those homes. Uh, by identifying that association, what's called the Interagency Drywall Task Force can now move forward developing protocols that will identify homes with the corrosive environment and can determine the effectiveness of remediation methods. And this task force is working with congressional and White House officials uh, to determine best approaches and, and so forth and so on. What I found um, particularly interesting here was that 
Uh, it was a 51-study home. Again, it was conducted by environmental health and engineering. They're all over the place. And um, in addition, uh, on November 23rd, two preliminary reports on corrosion safety issues were released by uh, CPSC. Um, the Sandia National Laboratories Materials and Engineering Center studied the long-term electrical hazard safeties uh, of conductor metal components, and NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, studied the corrosion effects on fire safety components taken from complaint homes. Hmm. And uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff. The EH&E findings are that hydrogen sulfide gas is the essential component that causes copper and silver sulfide corrosion in the complaint homes. Uh, other factors do contribute to the problems as well. Uh, here's one that I think is very interesting and really uh, is going to help in, in the future. The EH&E study found that by using handheld X-ray fluorescence or XRF and, and Fourier transform infrared instruments, they were able to detect markers that could identify Chinese-made drywall at a sheet-by-sheet -sheet level. And anyone who's been following the story knows how huge that is because the question's always been if, you know, if a home was constructed and it only had 10 sheets of this drywall and, 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 and 100 sheets of good drywall, you know, what do you do? Uh, this may help to um, be able to isolate the problems. There's some work that's going on that's also very important. The Interagency Task Force established an identification and remediation protocol team of scientists and engineers and they're going to be using the information that's recently come out to design a cost-effective screening protocol um, and also uh, hopefully cost-effective and reasonable remediation efforts. People who want to know more about this can go to a special new website. It's called drywallresponse.gov. That's D-R-Y-W-A-L-L response.gov. Okay. So there's some, some new stuff coming out there. And I'll segue back into your, your interview with Phil by asking him a question, which is uh, what is the, the Consumer Product Safety Commission's involvement within CIAQ? Um, I do know they were a, a little bit conspicuously absent from the last meeting, and that's um, perhaps due to some of these concerns. But I was uh, wanting to know uh, how, how they were uh, in, involved with, with CIAQ and what role they took. And I have some other questions for Phil, too, but I'll, I'll save them for the roundup. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you, Glenn. Before we uh, answer that question, though, we've got to make sure we thank our sponsors. Let's uh, thank those sponsors real quick. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary group dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Now, thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation, visit them at wolfsense.com. ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products and equipment remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryes Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryes is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. Let's go back to Phil. And, uh, Phil, did, did you want to follow up any to uh, what Glenn had discussed? I think those are some interesting topics. Yes, definitely. Um, as to the CPSC and their involvement in CIQ, they, uh, as I mentioned earlier, have been a co-chair since the beginning. Um their more recent activity has centered, uh, as, as anybody who's looked at the meeting minutes knows, portable generators um, and ozone generating air cleaners. They have two projects uh, on those topics that have been ongoing for some time and are still ongoing. Um, one reason CPSC has been less in evidence the last few meetings, I think, um, after tacking with my point of contact at CPSC, my peer at 
CPSC, Joanna Matheson, is that the <laughs> Chinese drywall situation has really consumed just about everybody over there. Uh, they've been very busy with it, and of course EPA has been providing a lot of technical support to CPSC and the wider community over this issue for several months now. Yeah, that's a big one, huh? It certainly is. In fact, um, if you look at the meeting minutes, I think, for the June meeting, uh, there was uh, not only an update on the drywall situation from uh, the feds, but we also had a couple of folks from the Department of Health in Florida, which has been hard hit by this problem, uh, give an update on what they've been working on as well. I've got a uh, text question that came in here, and I, I'm I'm curious. I've got two actually, but I'm gonna I'm going to take the second one. It goes back to the radon. Um, are you familiar with the whether or not radon mitigation strategies uh, may also be able to reduce methane, um, often found in significant levels, along with uh, H2S, hydrogen sulfide, uh, found oftentimes. Uh, according to this listener, in the same types of the same homes that have high radon levels. Well, that is an interesting question. Um, about five years ago, we launched a very small-scale field study to look at whether um, ASD or active soil depressurization systems, which is the principal radon mitigation technology, uh, might have secondary benefits for managing other soil gases that might be present in uh, the soil beneath homes. We, we had known for quite some time uh, through anecdotal uh, reporting that many homeowners were reporting that they had a distinct decline in um, moldy smells and mildew type smells in their basements following the installation of a radon mitigation system. So we were curious to see if we couldn't quantify uh, whether or not ASD systems, mitigation systems, might have a secondary benefit in that they might be reducing indoor moisture levels, humidity levels, and thereby uh, decreasing um, the opportunity for things like mold and mildew and dust mites and how those things, of course, being triggers for asthma. So, you know, there might be an indirect benefit to reducing, for example, asthma in certain circumstances as well as preventing the entry into homes and other types of buildings where ASD is used for other soil gases like the ones you mentioned, as well as um, volatile organics, which are typically associated with um, corrective action sites where you've had uh, chemical spills or fuel spills into groundwater and soil, vapor intrusion, uh, generally known as. Um, and what we did is we did a three-house study in Pennsylvania and found that, in fact, for much of the year, um, there was a reduction in uh, the moisture content of homes because of ASD. So the short answer is yes. Um, it would depend, of course, on the circumstances attendant to that particular building or house. But in general, uh, ASD systems are, in effect, preventing soil gas entry into the home in the first place. So if there's anything in the soil gases spectrum, uh, it's very likely that it'll be exhausted along with the radon before it enters the house, if done properly. Okay, we've, we've got another um, text question that came in. It's kind of a follow-up on the drywall thing, and I, I thought I would, uh, I'm kind of curious myself. I've seen some recent reports that uh, the focus regarding the presence of this problematic drywall, the so-called Chinese drywall, um, has that expanded to more nationwide uh, effort as opposed to focusing just on the southeast? Yes. If, in fact, you go to um, the Florida website, and you can find the link to that in the meeting minutes for, I believe, the June 3rd uh, CIQ meeting. Um, the Most of the states have been affected, as I recall, by the drywall uh, situation are the Gulf Coast states, some of the eastern and New England states, and some of the West Coast states. Okay. Uh, Cliff? Yeah, Phil. Um, in this research that CIAQ would conduct, um, what really drives it? Is it dr driven by what's in the media, such as toxic black mold, or is it scientifically driven 
such as radon, where we know that there are you know many thousands of deaths from lung cancer per year in non-smokers that is attributed to radon. Yeah, both. I think the simplest way. Yeah, the simplest way to answer that is to say that uh, the individual agencies, you know, have their own individual research agendas, which have been developed for reasons that are unique to each agency. That is also true of EPA. Um, the committee hasn't really issued a research agenda uh, comprehensively since the uh, late 80s. I think I mentioned that earlier. Um, a lot of the research that was proposed at that time has been done, uh, especially the research on radon. Uh, EPA in particular made a huge investment in radon-related research, both in terms of where it occurred, uh, how to mitigate it, et cetera. And right now, for radon at least, um, given its seriousness, we are pretty much entirely focused on risk reduction, outreach activities, public education activities, and making sure that the grant money we give to the states to conduct their statewide radon programs are being used as effectively as possible. We, we get a lot of... Uh questions. I noticed the six, you know, primary topics that came out early on were radon, carbon monoxide, formaldehyde, um, environmental tobacco yeah, smoke. ETS, uh, environmental tobacco smoke, and nitrous oxide, I believe they were, or nitrogen, nitrogen dioxide. I got My notes are screwed up here, Phil. But anyway, I'm curious, have, have you seen a lot more emphasis on, on mold and, you know, damp buildings and how many projects do you know of that are going on on that? And uh, is some of the new information that's come out from groups like CDC being brought up in these meetings? Uh, well, that's also a very interesting question. Um, <clears throat> the, the General Accountability Office did issue a report on mold um, just about a year ago, a, a little more than a year ago. I believe it came out in October, September, October uh, 2008, um, and it did uh, suggest that there was a greater need to coordinate activities related to mold across the federal government, and it recommended that CIAQ be used to do that. And in fact, we have had some discussion very preliminarily in the CIAQ meetings, um, both in February, June, and October of this year. And you can find the information that we have on that, which is fairly limited. Uh, in the meeting minutes for those three meetings on our website. I'm curious that these meetings, I, I have my own concern. I, I go out and do some training on, um, you know, microbial issues, and we're starting to see state regulations pop up, and there's no, you know, federal um, uh, overview or no federal outline, essentially, like we had with the HERA and the asbestos programs, even though that kind of, turned into a problem licensing-wise for people. Do, do you expect to ever see any kind of uh, federal outline for how these programs should work and work together? Or is there any action and activity in that way? There's none that I know of, and um, I really I don't have enough information to be able to answer that question uh, fully. Okay. It's just a, it's a tough one for the people out there trying to do the work. We've got five or six states now with their own regulations, and it's a... It's a tough issue for our people, so maybe we can get it on the on the screen for the CIAQ or on the radar screen. There, yeah, huh? okay. and, and as we mentioned earlier, I mean um, the the indoor air program here at EPA, um, you know, remains a voluntary program. All right, Cliff. Yeah, Phil, do you have a personal favorite in terms of um, most interesting IAQ issue that you've run into? Um, in your tenure with CIAQ? Uh, I can't say that I do. I mean, many of these issues um, have their own unique aspects, which make many of them fascinating. Um, for anybody who attended, for example, the last CIAQ meeting, uh, we had a presentation by EH&E, again, um, on uh, PCBs and clock, and some of the challenges that uh, that particular issue is presenting to uh, building owners and managers and others. So they all have a, a unique character, I think, and um, it's one of the things that makes this job in particular and working in 
the IAQ arena so interesting because very often what we end up seeing, of course, as, as we now know, is um, the market is taking action to develop a product that is then used and later to, uh, is discovered to present you know some unique problem that no one anticipated. I've got another text question I, I want to go back to here. We were talking about energy efficiency, and um, the question is, if energy efficiency, or is energy efficiency responsible for some of the issues we are seeing with respect to trace odors derived from corrosive products installed in homes? So I guess that would be, uh, it could be drywall or uh, maybe formaldehyde for off-gassing, et cetera. Do you have a, an opinion on that? No, I don't. But but I can say this. Um, you know, this is this has been a long-standing concern of people. I mean, when <clears throat> when the the GAO report from 1980 was done, one of the things that they highlighted as a concern for uh, IAQ was uh, what was then still a fairly uh, young national effort on energy efficiency and weatherization which of course had, had developed in response to um, the oil crisis of 1973 and 1979. Um, and they did comment quite extensively on the fact that um, the idea that efforts to improve energy efficiency of homes and reduce the energy use in homes might have adverse impacts on IAQ, and we're, we're still dealing with that question. Yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts. You know, it seems like that you know, there was a push for energy efficiency back then, and then it kind of, you know, died away. And, and now we have another push for energy efficiency. Do you see the same thing happening down the road, or do you think this time it's here to stay? That I can't predict, but I do know that I think the level of awareness on the part of all those people in the federal government and state government and in the private sector uh, that deal with energy efficiency, for example, in green buildings is much, much higher than it once was. And I think that the likelihood that that's going to be addressed effectively in the future is much higher than it might have been in the past. Okay. Let's go to the roundup here. Phil, we're going to uh, go to what we call our roundup. We're going to bring Glenn Fellman back on, and we'll all go around the horn here and do one last question and give you a chance to add anything that you may think we missed. Okay. Let's get uh, Glenn Feldman back on the line here. Glenn, do you have uh, any more questions? I sure do. Uh, I got a bunch of them, but I'll, <laughs> I'll just ask one and pass them around the table. Um, I'm fortunate in that um, members of my staff usually attend the CIQ meetings in person since we're sort of local out here in Rockville, Maryland, but I also get a chance to uh, hear them on the, uh, the, 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 the electronic files. But what caught my attention was at the September 21st meeting, uh, Bob Thompson from EPA reported that a new panel called the Green Products Roundtable is uh, being aimed at creating standards for the certification of green products. And I'd like to hear from Phil if there's any updates on that. And in particular, I'm interested is to know is, will the government be involved in setting these standards, or will it defer to private groups and, and, the, and the, the public yeah, you know, in, you know, groups? Oh, thanks for the question. Um, what I would suggest is I, I cannot answer that question in any detail because um, the work that you're mentioning that Bob is involved in is uh, one that involves uh, many different people within the federal government as well as the private sector. And I would suggest that um, you contact Bob directly to get an update on where he is with that activity. Um, he has provided some information as part of the meeting minutes, and I'm hoping he'll be giving us a more detailed update at the February 3rd CIQ meeting, which is our next meeting. Right. Okay. Well, we'll look out for that then. Okay. I'll let it go around the table here, and then if it comes back to me, I'll have another one. Sounds okay. good, Glenn. All right. All right. Well, I've, I've got two, actually, and I, I think that they're, they're pretty short. 
Uh, I guess the first one, Phil, is this information that is presented at the meetings, um, is it accessible to the public and how? Yes. Uh, everything that we do in these meetings is accessible to the public and um, primarily through the website. What we do is, um, since we started using the webinar uh, feature especially, uh, we're able to provide MP3 files for the audio as well. Um, so what I would suggest people do if they have an interest in uh, what's happened at the CIAQ is go to the website and look at the meeting resources section of the website. And there they can find uh, a summary of uh, all the meeting minutes going back to 2002. Um, they can, for the more recent ones uh, that we put up, hear the audio associated with some parts of those meetings, if not the entire meeting. Um, and um, the information on the presentations uh, gives them links to the presenters and or authors, uh, allowing them to contact those folks directly to get copies of whatever may have been presented. Okay. I guess but, the but the most the most useful thing, really, in addition to the meeting minutes, is um, to be a to be a CIAQ listserv subscriber because uh, I send out um, probably between 30 and 50 uh, various announcements on the listserv about things IAQ over the course of the year, and that's uh, a little bit more real time and probably a little bit more useful for folks who are wanting to know uh, perhaps what is happening when this next big IAQ meeting is taking place or what the hot topic is. I guess the second question is really attendance in regards to this meeting. You had said that you, know, you could have 120 to maybe 130 or 135 people. Are these people that yeah. are invited or you know, if, if, I, if I'm a non-media person who has a, an interest, you know, if I'm a researcher, if I'm a student, I've got an interest in the topics that are discussed, can I get uh, an invitation to the meeting or can I just attend? You can attend. Uh, these meetings are totally open. They're open to the public. Um, the announcements about the meeting and how to participate in the meetings are uh, posted simultaneously to the website and through the listserv announcements that I send in advance of the meeting, including uh, what you need to know to enlist or reserve a seat at the webinar. Mm -hmm. So um, those would be the primary two ways in which people would know about when the meeting is taking place and how to participate, but they are totally public, open to the public. Thanks. And the other thing I want to mention while I have a moment left is um, we talk a lot about on, on the show about radon, and I just want to remind everyone that January is National Radon Action Month, and we'll be celebrating um, many different outreach activities during Radon Action Month and we make a concerted effort to reach out to the public during January. And this year, we will be hosting our Tools for Schools Symposium, which is another major program here in the Indoor Environments Division, uh, in January, um, and combining that with our uh, ceremony to present awards to uh, the children who won our National Radon Poster Contest. And to learn more about all of that, you can either go to uh, the IED website and look for Tools for Schools, or you can look for the Radon program, and uh, you, they'll be cross-referenced. Okay. We've talked a lot about what you know CIAQ is doing now, and um, it sounds like we're really uh, doing a lot. But I'm, I'm just curious, are there any special plans for the future, or you know, do you have a wish list for the future, the things that you'd like to be able to do that you're not doing now? Yes, actually, uh, there are several things. Um, most of these are related to um, widening the community of practice and the, the sharing of information in that community, primarily through the website. And uh, four things that I can talk about very briefly are uh, I'm hoping that we can uh, beef up uh, the presence on the website for what I call research resources and or facilities. Uh, this would be uh, a summary in one place where people could see at a glance all of the federal research facilities and research, uh, resources that are currently available within the federal family. For example, NIST, who has been a very active participant in CIQ from the beginning, um, has um, a research house that they have on campus in Gaithersburg. 
and that would be included in this list. Because uh, right now, uh, there is no one place um, where one can go and at a glance know what all the federal resources devoted to IAQ research are. That's one thing. Another thing is I'm hoping that we can make um, the CIAQ a little bit more international. I mentioned earlier that uh, the listserv has a number of international subscribers. Uh, but what I'd like to do is uh, develop a section of the website that would be devoted to linking up with our international, other national peers, uh, groups like CIAQ and or um, agencies that are involved in IAQ in other nations. Uh, the third thing I'd like to do is uh, start promoting in one place all that we know about the upcoming IAQ conferences, uh, wherever they may be. And the fourth thing is uh, I'm hoping to develop a section of the website that will help inform federal employees and federal property managers and health, health and safety officers, facility managers, about how to acquire IAQ services within the federal family, either through GSA schedule, FOH, which is the Federal Occupational Health Services, or others. Excellent. Well, that sounds great. Is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add before we go? No, except <laughs> if you haven't tested your house for radon, you really should. All right. That's uh, National Radon Month coming in January. Everybody's going to have to Correct. make a New Year's resolution to test their home for radon. And the second thing, if I might, is if you're not a subscriber to the listserv, that's the simplest way to stay in the loop. Please do that. We will get that up on the IAQ Radio homepage uh, immediately following the show. Tell people how to do that. I want to thank this week's guest, uh, Mr. Mr. Philip Jalbert of the the Executive Secretary of the Interagency Council on IAQ for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio. I want to make sure the listeners know next week we've got a, a really nice show lined up with Rebecca Morley, the Executive Director of the National Center for Healthy Housing and Jerome Paulson, an MD who specializes in healthy homes and children's health. So we look forward to that show next week. I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick here, uh, Environmental Annie at the controls, and Chris Boisel, the wingman. But most importantly, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 